Welcome to One and Done TV. I am the first one of your co-hosts to speak, Ian Hamilton. And I am your co-host in 2022, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that were canceled after one season. They got one chance, and that's the only chance they got. Right, John? Right. We are. We have blooped ourselves. Am I using the terminology for paper girls uh, correctly? Is it blooping? Yeah, or folding, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I guess we're folding ourselves on top of these shows, asking what did they do, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. Today we're talking about 2022's Paper Girls, and this was actually a listener-suggested episode So shout out to John K. Thank you very much for reaching out and putting this show on our radar. If you also want to suggest a show for us, you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at oneanddonetv or email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com. And yeah, thank you so much for the suggestion, John K. We can't wait to talk to you and other listeners about it. But before we talk about that, John, what have you been watching lately? I finished the third installment of Below Deck spinoffs, Below Deck Sailing Yacht. I got through (laughs) all three seasons of that. It took me a bit. Uh, It wasn't quite as exciting, though. I don't know. It was was a joy. The captain was one of my favorites that I had seen on the show. Uh, There was just a lot of inner crew drama that made me really uncomfortable and I didn't uh, it it was a tougher one to to binge but I ultimately enjoyed it give me a nugget of drama one of the crew members got pregnant while on the boat was the father of which was one of the deckhands and the deckhand is denying paternity of the kid well, you're on a boat, so there were how many other people could be the dad? He was he sucks. This guy Jean Luc, he's like six nine. He's an absolute weird monster of a human being. He just is this twenty four year old long jawed dummy, and he has no responsibility for anything in his life. So to find that out at the reunion was. One of those things that was shocking, but it was not surprising. So there was a lot of, not a lot of stuff like that. That was a pretty unique bit of drama, but... 6'9 is too tall to be hanging out on a boat all the time. Especially a sailing boat, man. Like, this was a lowered to the ground. Like, some of these mega yachts, they're like three stories tall. The sailing yacht that they've covered in these three seasons of Below Deck Sailing Yacht, I have no idea how anybody over like 5'10 can walk comfortably around this thing. He literally, this guy literally had to move beds because one of his bed, one of the beds on another part of the boat was slightly longer. So he'd actually be able to sleep. 
it was nuts. Ian, what are you watching? I've just been rewatching the 90s MTV classic Daria lately. Mm. Cynical girl, you know, friends and family funny, high school funny. Uh, I love that show. It's definitely worth watching beginning to end. And it's not necessarily going to tell you there are two movies. There's a movie between season four and five and a movie after the series is over. Not theatrical released, right? No, they were both like MTV movies. But, uh, you know, important to the story, although you can still, you don't need to watch them to get what's going on. But uh, if you get sucked in, Daria can take up a lot of your time. It's easy to accidentally watch 10 episodes in a row when you mean to go to bed. What is it about Daria that makes you want to spend time with her? I think that the show does a good job of being wacky and truthful at the same time. And Daria's cynicism is often challenged. So even though she's right and you get the satisfaction as an audience member of being like, she's saying what I'm thinking, there are the people that are like, you know, Daria, you could just try liking something for once. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe I should just try to invite joy into my life instead of hating on everything. Yeah. And it's a good reminder. It's a weird. It's a unique show, too. You know, like I don't. It's not super adult. It's not really for kids. Uh, it's right in the middle, just showing off those emotional truths. And I had to text your wife and tell her that she should start watching it because I do think she would love it. She has never even heard of it. Uh, I had heard of it, at least. I, I have not watched it, um, but I don't know what it is that has kept me away from it. Maybe it's you liking it that has just generally been repulsive to me. But I do see the value in it. I will check it out. I will tie my wife to a couch and, uh, you know, force her eyes open clockwork orange style at your behest. That's what you wanted, right? Uh, Okay. I texted her. You texted me as well. Her will. Well, I wanted to loop you in on the conversation. It was a group text. And so I. Well, you know what? I needed Natalie's support of like, back me up, Natalie. You also think that Elise should watch Daria, you know? So I wanted Natalie to chime in. And then it's like, what am I going to text my wife, your wife, and not you? I had to. I felt obligated to. I'm not so self-conscious that I could be left out of a conversation. So I just assume you were subliminally telling me, John, force your wife to watch this show. And so at your instruction, no, I get that. I try not to think about me either, but there I am in the mirror, just staring right back. And it's jarring. Well, officer, my friend has his (laughs) wife tied up on the couch, but it's showtime. Five. Four, three, two, one, showtime! Four 12-year-old girls set out to work their paper routes on November 1st, 1988, also known as Hell Day, only to end up being caught in a time-traveling, multidimensional war between two factions. Little did they know their fates would end up in purgatory, 
as Amazon Prime canceled Paper Girls less than two months after the series dropped. This is a very complicated show that I think you did a great job of distilling into a couple sentences there, Ian. Thank you. I mean, there is so much to talk about. I took copious amounts of notes as Mm -hmm. this show not only has to deal with the complexities of time travel and rules therein, but also the emotional life of four 12-year-old girls, which somehow is more complicated than time travel itself. At least in the way the show presents it, for sure. I think, I mean, we'll get into it, but the time travel definitely to me feels secondary to everything that the the characters are going through on the show. So it is a sci-fi show. It's a bit of a mystery show. It's all available on Amazon Prime. I. It's a tough one to categorize, though. And yeah, I'm, I'm ready to dive right into it. We'll dive right into the highlights of the show right after this sooner than usual commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. Let's get into the highlights. Highlight. So this show is about four girls. Uh, let's talk about them really quick. We got Mac, we got KJ, we got Tiffany, we have Aaron. They're all ethnically different than each other. You know, white, black, Chinese, American, uh, Jewish, and... That is very important to the show, at least early on, right? Yeah, absolutely. Erin is the the new girl in town who is caring after her ailing mother. KJ is the sort of princess of the group, has been sort of always part of this rich household. Spoiled, she's getting ready for her bat mitzvah. Tiffany's the brainiac, wants to be valedictorian. And then Mac is the, the badass. The one that's uh, smoking cigs at 12 years old, shorter haircut, ready to swear and pop somebody in the face, either physically or verbally. So they all definitely serve their purposes. Uh, I think it's important to note that Mac has those hard edges because she comes from a poor blue collar family Mm -hmm. and brings a lot of the the racism and the anti-Semitism to the show that the girls are already working through with society, but then get to sort through as a friend group. Yeah, they do. They, the thing I liked about their dynamic was they were clearly at least KJ, Tiffany and Mac had a familiarity. Aaron is sort of brought into this group as this is her first night on the paper route when the show begins. And before they get into their time traveling Trauma. I would say adventures, but it just seems to be trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. And they 
they do have that little bit of kinship, but there is certainly a distance where there's enough room for the show to let them figure out things about each other as the show goes on. Oh, absolutely. They barely know each other at the beginning, even the ones that do know each other. Um, one of them calls the other one the wrong name and is like, that was a year ago. I don't remember you. <laughs> um, so that's kind of how they get together is they're all these paper girls and then they're in the wrong place at the wrong time and get caught up in this time traveling war, which is kind of signaled by all the pink lighting. Right, John? Yeah, it is very much... And I, it felt a little bit nostalgic. I don't know why. I can't think of anything specifically from the 80s that was very pink, but or at least shot very pink. But that is definitely the production design of the show. It's very fluorescent uh, when it wants to get sci-fi-y. Would it, you say it's pretty in pink, John? I would say it's pretty in pink. I would also say that it's weirdly dim for pink. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a muted pink. I agree. Yeah. Um, it's good so, that the colorblind guy is uh, giving his opinions on shades and tones, for sure. <laughs> uh, so that's just the first episode is them being paper girls. The rest of the show is them dealing with being in this time war. Uh, half of it is in 2019, and the other part of it is in the year 1999. First, they get thrust into the future where, okay, really quickly, I want to talk about Aaron gets shot by a bullet. Then these future guys on the STF heal her. Then they immediately get murdered by the old guard. Yeah, the STF are sort of the Luke Skywalker rebels of the time-traveling world and the old watch, I believe, not the old guard. The old guard is a movie with uh, Charlize Theron. Whoops. I think. Well, they are kind of young adults, aren't they, John? Yeah. Yeah, they're teens. They're they're old Charlie's Theron movies. I was doing Charlie's Theron movies. And the old guards are a bunch of monsters. (laughs) And they had to do an Italian job. Furious 7. So (laughs) So the STF of the Rebels, the old watch is the sort of empire that is guarding the time traveling world. And if you illegally time travel, it is a capital offense. So that does sort of create this. The first episode is very chaotic and like fast and driven. And the rest of the show kind of slows it down a little bit, but there's always this sort of chase element to it. They're running away from these greater things that are trying to police their activities. Right. So you alluded to this into the beginning is that this is more of a show about teenagers and then there is time travel involved. So basically they're thrown into the future. Then they have to deal with this. Aaron meets older Aaron and older Aaron played by Ali Wong has to take care of all of them and they have to deal with this existential quandary of what do we do now that these time traveling teenagers are here. Oh, also, by the way, you're me at 12 years old and I'm you years from now and I'm a disappointment to you. Yeah. Um, Also, you see yourself die, but that comes later. (laughs) So there's that human element to it. You know, Mac goes to find her brother that she, they're all amazed to see the internet first. 
And then Mac finds her brother online. He's a doctor. She goes to meet up with him. And so they're dealing with these very human things. But then all of a sudden, the old watch comes in and is like, I'm going to kill you. And they're thrust back into the sci-fi adventure. Yeah, it's a show that like takes its time for moments, but is not afraid to just throw a rock on the accelerator too to get things going when things get a little bit uh, stickier. When you're talking about getting things going, uh, are you talking about the giant Pacific Rim type robot? I wasn't specifically referring to the Pacific Rim. Uh, what are the kaiju? Yeah. I think the kaiju are the monsters. Yeah, the kaiju are the monsters. The robots fight the monsters. But yes, one of the transports that they use to go through time travel are these gigantic robots that are able to run into these wormholes, which they call folds in time. And the first one that we have is built or at least sent to Nate Cordry, who is one of these STF fighters, and the robot takes them back to the year 1999 as well. So first, like he had said, so I'm not going to repeat it. Right. So these giant robots, though, why I bring up why it was so quick was that it was like it was the end of episode three, I think. We're introduced to this giant robot, whichever one it was. And then... They learn to pilot it, jump through the wormhole, and then it's destroyed, and it never really comes up again. Like, she has to learn how to pilot it really quickly. She has to learn how to fight in it really quickly, and then it's destroyed. And that aspect of the show felt a little bit rushed to me. She, for clarity as well, is older Aaron, Ali Wong, who kind of gets, again, thrust into this conflict when this younger version of herself shows up with her not-so-very-much friends. Yeah, I mean, well, her younger self is trying not to get murdered by these time police, so <laughs> it is in her best interest to help her. We all want to stay alive. I guess we have that drive in all of us. Uh, so then they end up in 1999, and I just want to talk really quick about the tampon scene. Um, it was awesome. <laughs> so they're, you know... These adolescent girls, one of them has their period. The other ones don't know how to use a tampon and uh, tampon. And (laughs) there's this great scene where they're all trying to figure out how they work at all. But the interesting thing to me about this and why this is a highlight of the show to me was the music behind it was like this Breaking Bad techno, urgent, cool music. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they use the score very purposefully in this show. I feel like sometimes to spur up the drama of moments that might not otherwise be dramatic, sometimes to make things a little wackier that I think could be construed as dramatic, it is very much a synth-driven score. And yeah, that, that scene in particular sort of plays up the tension of, yeah, none of us know what to do with it. They literally have to look through the instructions of how to insert a tampon because they also, the pads that they had in 1988 are very different than the female hygiene products that are available in 1999. 
Right, Max, like, they look like diapers. <laughs> and uh, this moment really unites the group, too, because they all realize that even though Aaron is dealing with this, this is something that they're all going to have to deal with eventually. So they might as well figure it out. And one of the fun notes I heard from an interview I was listening to with the writers is that, so the writer's room was almost entirely women. And basically this scene was all about how confusing and actually dangerous uh, these products can be sometimes. So they felt this great freedom in talking about how awkward they were, uh, how there are health risks to them, you know, how scary they can be, all this stuff that is not in the comic book, but they were able to really flesh out with the TV series. Yeah. Health risks that are real and also health risks that are made up. Like Mac says, basically, if you leave it in there too long, it'll absorb inside you and, you know, you'll basically dry up completely. Oh, she says, uh, it's like gum. It'll just stay in there. Oh, yeah. rot. <laughs> <laughs> what else happens in 1999, Ian? In 1999, we meet Tiffany's older self. We get this book of all the times that there are folds that they can travel in time with, which is created by Larry in the future, but it's brought to the past. So now that older version of Tiffany has it in the future, she's the one that invents time travel. Larry is <sighs> Nate Cordry. I do. I want to say that too. Right. And I also want to say the other another highlight about uh, Larry is that he does die twice in the show. And had it continued, I really hope that he would have died more and more times mm-hmm. in in more excruciating and uh, kind of humiliating ways. We all want a TV version of Happy Death Day for sure. And this would have been a good use of that. You know, we all want some sort of silly groundhog, multiple murders, no consequence uh, thing. But some of his deaths were quite brutal. Well, I guess both of them were. This is a very, for a show that features such a young cast, it is a very, you know, violent and uh, foul-mouthed show. And there's a lot of bad things that happen to people consistently. So. Well, that that's one of the things about the show that the girls have to keep dealing with is this, the, there's a lot of existentialism in that they're meeting their older selves, they're learning their own fates, and guess what? They're watching people die. This is over the course of four days. Sometimes them. Season. Sometimes they are watching them die. Right. So, and, you know, people are shot, they're blown up, people are burnt to a crisp, uh... They got guns to their heads. And you know what? In the first episode, those older boys bullied them. That was so mean. that too. For really no reason. Those, uh, those hooligans in the street were, in the first episode in 1988, were completely unnecessarily targeting everyone on this. It was, it was tough. It was tough to exactly. watch. Exactly. It, it was very tough to watch. Another highlight, John, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about Jason Manzukis, the cathedral, and the end of the show? Wow, that was a lot to throw at me, but I'm going to do my best. We've got Jason. I know you want to talk about the Manzooks. I love Zooks. God bless. If anyone knows me, they know I love Jason Manzukis. How Did This Get Made is one of my favorite podcasts out there. I adore him. He is sort of, I think his name, the name of his character is the grandfather. and. Mm-hmm. 
the first episode of Paper Girls is very chaotic. The last episode of Paper Girls is very chaotic. We've got dinosaurs eating people. We've got uh, big time rifts. We've got Jason Manzoukas talking about how we can't keep repeating things or else time is just going to dilute itself and become nothing more than a broken piece of cassette tape. I and, think they call the time rip a burp hole. Oh, they do. That's like the one of the, the name of the episode is like giant burp hole in the sky or something. Yeah. And that's how we we travel in time and everything is determined pre is predetermined. And so Jason Manzoukas explains that everything that has happened is already happening, but we can't keep trying to fix it or else it's going to basically break the time stream and everything is going to blow up. So they take the girls out essentially to put them back in their time frame and erase their memories. And what we get at the end of the show is the two pairs of girls. We've got Tiffany and Aaron who are together. And we've got KJ and Mac who are together and they get thrown into two completely different time frames. Tiffany and Aaron end up in the sixties. We don't know where Mac and KJ are, but we probably would have seen some more time traveling wackiness in future seasons. Ian, do you have any other sort of highlights now that we've sort of gone over the scope of the show? The betrayal of Prioress. Uh, this is a character we have not talked about much, but she is the one that is hunting down the kids throughout the season. And it turns out that her and Jason Manzoukas used to be partners. And at the end of the show, she has a philosophical difference with how to fight these time crimes. And so she goes against what the regular time police would do and she betrays Jason Manzuka, sends the kids to the past to fix something and so then he kills her one of the main characters dies just as a lot of other people do a lot of people coming back I hope that all of this wildness has uh, made some sense and I don't know do you have any other kind of more fun highlights Ian it's not a fun highlight but Mac uh, seeing her older brother and finding out she's going to die of brain cancer. Oh, ha, 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 we all remember that hilarious little anecdote about, yeah, all the other kids have some version of a future self that they interact with. But Mac at 12 is told that at 16, she will have cerebral leukemia that will, or cerebral lymphoma that will kill her. So... We have all these big existential questions about what is time travel? What can we do to better our future? How do our future goals impact our present decisions? And there's a lot more to unpack. And I think one of the best things that we could do is to talk about some Dunzo Awards, which we will do right after this commercial break. And now, a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show that we watch. It could be the best, it could be the worst, it could be the most, it could be the weirdest, whatever it may be. We have decided to give elements of Paper Girls their just desserts. We have time-traveled just a little bit ahead in this podcast about, you know, 25 minutes or so to give out these awards. Ian, 
we each get two of these awards to dole out. What, good sir, is your first Dunzo Award? My first Dunzo Award goes to the most scarring moment of the series. There's a couple. What do you got? Believe it or not, I don't think it goes to the girls. I think it goes to Max's stepmom, Alice. Oh, oh, Alice. So when the girls travel to 1999, they travel to July 3rd, I think, at first. And then they end up in July 5th, which is secretly Max's birthday, which she takes as an opportunity to visit her grave. And so her and RJ go to her grave. KJ. Her and KJ go to the grave. There's a J in the name, John. I was bound to get it wrong. <laughs> they go to Max's grave and clean it off and go, wow, it's a, this is crazy. I'm looking at my own grave. And then Max's stepmom comes up to put flowers on the grave and ends up spotting Mac being like, no, certainly I'm wrong. And then ends up absolutely seeing Mac and chasing her down to the point of driving her car onto some graves. Yeah. I'm glad you noticed that too. Oh, I I did. I was like, this is a little bit too, I was like, is she going to just like off road this like 1994 Toyota Camry and just start mowing down like headstones? But uh, she did not. She just got like two tires onto the grass and then stopped. Right, but it kind of looked like she got onto two real graves, and it made me really wonder if that was production, just putting some stones down to make it look like they were there, or if they uh, dabbled into some moral gray area. Some moral grave area. Thank you. Uh, So Alice sees her dead stepdaughter that she cared for until she died, and uh, probably thinks she's crazy, uh, and that's the last we see of her. She's very grief-stricken. She's probably afraid she's hallucinating, doesn't know what's going on, and we never see her again. So imagine that happening to you, John, and then you have no closure at all. I have thought about that many times, all the times that I've tried to chase down uh, my former stepchildren that have died. Yeah. It was uh, it was a tough scene, and it's Mac is very dismissive of her her parents. You know, she talks about how when, you know, in their current timeline, that her stepmom is basically unable to be shaken awake from her drunken comas, and to hear that she is going to turn into this very supportive and loving person as. Mac is ailing is definitely something that Mac doesn't take lightly, which Mac is very prone to being very dismissive of other people's feelings in general. So the fact that she actually did sort of take that in is a big step forward for her character. Well, it's her defense mechanism. She has to, they allude that they allude to the fact that her and her brother have handled some abuse from their father. Yeah. Where it's never really said, but I assume it's physical as well as emotional. Mm-hmm. And Max's death turns around the life of her brother, who at the beginning of the show is just some 
wastoid teenager and in 2019 is a doctor with a nice house, a really supportive wife. Yeah. And uh, one bratty kid, one cool kid uh, that both go to uh, prep school. Yeah. Mac, Mac has to say goodbye to some very kind people uh, throughout the course of this show. Not just Alice, but she's also ripped away from her, this really great version of her older brother. Like, yeah, you said this wife is supportive. They were going to be willing to like adopt Mac as a daughter, essentially, if she got stuck in 2019 where they were. Their relationship, Mac and her older brothers, was one of my favorites, actually, of the show. The guy that played her older brother was is this guy Cliff Chamberlain. He's a Chicago actor, a Steppenwolf guy, actually. I've seen oh. him in a couple plays. Yeah. He was just really affecting because it was this idea of, yeah, the old the old version of me, that wasteoid is still kind of here, but because of everything that happened to you, I really got my stuff together and, you know, I wish I had cared for you more. I wish I had all this sort of time with you. And when they say goodbye to just another sort of like wrenching moment because KJ needs to basically extradite Mac from this timeline so that they can leave and not get caught by the old watch and probably killed. There's this beautiful shot of Mac holding on to KJ on the back of a motorbike as KJ is driving off. And slowly Mac is just kind of hugging KJ tighter and tighter because this moment is like sinking in. It's probably about a 45 second shot. And it's one of the, I think the great examples of the show taking She's also its time. Crying. Oh yeah. But she doesn't start off crying. She, no. she sort of builds to that. And it's one of these, again, the, these examples of the show kind of taking its time when it needs to, and then accelerating when it wants to as well. I just thought that was a really great shot and a really great illustration of Mac and what she is holding back through all of these interactions. And what's your first Dunzo Award, John? My first Dunzo Award goes to my favorite Chicago landmark that I got to see in this show. The and music that was box. The music box. Oh, man. That made me so happy, dude. I was really happy. Uh, so the music box theater in Chicago is one of my favorite places probably in the world to be. Old school movie house. Love it. The show is shot, I saw, mostly in like McHenry, Illinois as well. But there's a when they're in 1999, they use the interior of the music box as a as this uh, you know, movie theater that KJ goes to. Which speaking of like sitting with moments and realizations and stuff, so KJ's big revelation when she runs into her older self is she actually finds out that she's gay because she it's never really been, you know, she's 12. She hasn't really considered her sexuality and who she is and what her attractions are. And she has just kind of always assumed as a 12-year-old that she would be brought up like her mom in this sort of, you know, I'm going to be the perfect wife to the perfect husband. And she's like, yeah, that's, 
my life's going to be boring, whatever. But the fact that she gets to see her older self having what seems to be a very happy relationship with a woman who she meets in film school. So it introduces younger KJ, not just to her sexuality, but also to what will turn into a very sort of key and core love of film, which as like a movie nerd myself, it was, it was just really heartwarming to see that. Well, one thing about KJ that rang really true to me was, so my sister's a lesbian and she has talked to me about how when she was growing up, sometimes she was kind of aggressive with other women without understanding that it was actually, she was attracted to them or liked them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I definitely saw some of that in this storyline. Yeah. There's another one of those great moments where KJ sees older KJ kiss her girlfriend. And that's when she realizes like, Oh my God. And she immediately like kind of shuts herself in a bathroom and she's like scared and like nervous. But then as the, Again, no words are spoken, but you just see this sort of like calm, like not like, oh, uh-huh, not anything like that big. It's just well, this... they do, they do have a light bulb appear over her head, John. Oh, they! I did not see that. I just saw. No, no, I was kidding. Like in a cartoon. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> know if so there was sorry. something. I didn't know if there was something in the in the shot that I I missed, but. Aha! <laughs> it was this nice sort of moment where younger KJ you could see on her face being like well that explains a lot like being able to reconcile that with the older version of me absolutely um also I think we have to talk about it really quickly John what did she see in that movie theater 2001 a space odyssey and she said she didn't understand it but ultimately she let herself go and she was able to enjoy it for what it was she said she stopped thinking about... Oh, wait. I wrote I wrote the whole sequence down. I, I oh, cool. I'm glad you were able to have something to throw in my face. Again, I recognize that I'm in the minority. I... Oh, man. Uh, wait, 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 go wait, for wait. it. I, Just go for it. I know. I, I hate know. you. I hate you so much. But I thought it was kind of validating to you, too. So she says, at first, I was kind of confused. But then I stopped thinking about it so much, and I listened to the music and watched what was on the screen, and it was really beautiful. And then the other person goes, it's a movie that you cannot comment logically. You just have to let the experience wash over you. And so I just kind of... I think it's validating to me and validating to you, even though you're wrong. Well, I think you're wrong, too. So at least we can agree on that. What's your <laughs> yeah. second Dunzo Award? My second Dunzo Award is the Power Rangers Award, (laughs) which goes to the end of the first episode and beginning of the second episode. The old watches uniforms do not come across as very sophisticated to me (laughs) or time traveler-y. I got the vibes from the first episode that it was very COVID shot. And that maybe there were some budget constraints because it took a solid three, four, five episodes for me to feel like this was a sci-fi show that was trying to look cool. Yeah. 
I really thought that Amazon got cheap with some of the graphics and some oh, yeah. of the costumes and some of the production design in general, even even the pink lighting, which was a good idea. Sometimes they just put pink lights in the rooms that they're in and you see them, which is not really the way that lighting is done. Uh, it just felt like Amazon got really cheap sometimes, and I would have appreciated just a smidge of that Lord of the Rings budget going to this show. Yeah, there was a... We talked a little bit about it, but there's a freaking pterodactyl in the last episode of the show that kills Nate Cordry for the second time. And there's shots of that that look straight up like sci-fi channel. There, It does not Thank look you. good. Yeah. And I think the show works best in that sort of sci-fi element when it keeps the camera tight on like the girls as they are running and being chased and stuff like that. Because... Yeah, I, I think it must have been a budget thing that they just couldn't make all of it work. But the first episode where they are being chased by these teenagers, then they get sort of mixed up in this thing. Then, oh, we forgot to mention Mac shoots Aaron, which is a wild thing on accident. It, it was the classic trope. It happened in the get down too, where someone has a gun and then someone else is like, don't use that gun. It's dangerous. And they wrestle them with the gun. And ultimately the gun goes off and kills somebody because that one person who was trying to be safe got really out of hand really quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was intense, but as a result, like Arid sort of gets shuffled around as they're trying to find some way to heal her. And that sort of gets them into this time travel thing where they get thrust into the future but that entire sequence is so tight on them and it's so chaotic and you have no real sort of grasp on what is happening and why it's happening. And I think when you have that kind of ambiguity built into how it's shot, I think it just makes it more effectively tense. Yeah. I want to bitch about one more shot when it comes <laughs> to the graphics. You know, the uh, part with, there's like a scouting drone or something. It's in the oh, yeah. last episode or second to last episode Yeah, where it's trapped underneath something and they lift up the lid and it's just like standing there and barely moves. You could tell because of the way the CGI is and because of the budget, they can't have it move too much and they can't have it move outside of that two foot area, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It was the creature design in general was was pretty rough. Yeah, Ooh. the robots. Uh, I mean, the pink clouds. So anytime there was time travel happening, the clouds get pink and they move around. I thought that was always cool, but that was the only thing that was like legit every time. It very much reminded me of like, have you ever seen Take Shelter? No. Oh, Michael Shannon movie with Jessica Chastain. Like, it's a very low-budget thing about sort of Michael Shannon seeing essentially the end of the world, and a lot of it is, like, big cloud movements and stuff. So I feel like you can do effective cloud work on a on a low budget, and I think they, they did a really good job with that, for sure. I thought the sci-fi got better at the very end, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because they kind of, like, take a break from the sci-fi for so much of it too 
you know, the the first episode is very sci-fi heavy. There's some sci-fi the when it comes to the third episode is the ro- the robot fights. Mm-hmm. And then, but a lot of the show is just about these girls reckoning with their future selves, which, if you don't mind, gets me into my second Dunzo award. The best use of Matrix-style raves. And that goes <laughs> to the sequence in 1999 where younger Tiff meets adult Tiffany. So we haven't talked as much about uh, Tiffany, and I thought it would be a good time to do so because Tiffany's really interesting. She is, like I said, a brainiac, uh, wants to be the valedictorian of her high school. And when she meets the 1999 version of herself, that version of herself is cool and fun and collected, whereas younger Tiffany is very mission-driven, focused, and adult Tiffany had become valedictorian of her high school, had gotten into MIT just like younger Tiffany and her mom always wanted, and then she eventually like dropped out after when she found out that she was adopted. It just kind of messed with her whole worldview, and what Tiffany turned into was this like fishnet wearing blue haired, just like punk badass. And the, when we get to see her there at these, um, they're at these like abandoned warehouses and they walk in and it's just like all this like loud techno. And it just so reminded me of the matrix and that aesthetic, which was so great because it was 1999 too. I was just like, I don't know if any of these parties existed or anything like that, especially in a fictional suburb of Cleveland, which is where this show mostly takes place. But it made me so happy to see that neon aesthetic everywhere. And that can let us talk a little bit about older Tiffany as well, because Mm -hmm. she is very smart. She went to MIT. This is a big part of Tiffany's uh, storyline is that younger Tiffany basically gets to see that all of her dreams come true, yeah. but then is like disappointed by a couple things about her that she is this lighting designer that goes to these raves and dropped out of MIT. Turns out she was expelled by MIT. And by the way, drops the truth bomb on her that she's adopted and her mom isn't going to tell her till she's like 19. So older Tiffany, so Tiffany's storyline is really interesting in that she gets to be like, wow, I'm really impressed with myself. And then reality comes crashing down so hard on her as opposed to older Aaron is just kind of pathetic and then eventually rises to the occasion. And then older KJ, we never, we don't see that we see that she's content in her life. Exactly. And that which is, is something, enough. yeah, which is enough. And older Tiffany is also content, but in sort of a different way, but is also sort of perceived as a disappointment by younger Tiffany because it's the idea of younger Tiffany is constantly looking towards the future. And adult Tiffany's like, you need to have fun right now. And I want to give that to you. I want to give that sort of lesson to you because. It took me too long, and I hope that you can take that and get friends that aren't your hamster who's named Weird Al, which 
I, I needed to bring that up. I needed to say that there's a second, this is the second show that we are talking about where there's an episode title called Weird Al is Dead. The other one being Why the Last Man. This time it refers to Tiffany's hamster, who is certainly dead when they get into 2019. But it's the same situation where in Why the Last Man and the show where they get sad because they realize that Weird Al is dead. Yeah. They're like, I'm caught up in all this other stuff, but oh my God, Weird Al is dead. Heartbreaking. That's the most heartbreaking. Yeah. How is that not the most heartbreaking thing for your first Dunzo Award? If it were me, I, it would be. What it kind of fan are you? What kind of fan are you? I am a super fan, and you know this. Mm. Uh, mm. One other thing about Tiffany, it's funny you said she's looking towards the future because she ends up inventing time travel because she has Nate Cordry's book, which was like the mentaculous from a serious man to me. It's just kind of funny. <laughs> a it's reference like, oh, it's that a- nobody else will understand. Everybody thinks that A Serious Man is an incredible movie, just like me, John. Is it your favorite Coen Brothers movie? John, A Serious Man is my favorite movie. Movie. That's what I thought. Okay. Natalie painted me the DVD cover of it for my 28th birthday, and I often say that if our apartment is ever on fire, that is the only thing I'm grabbing. Not her. That's the thing I'm running back in to grab. God, you're you're leaving Natalie in your burning apartment, but you're taking... She's wily. She'll figure it out. The painting (laughs) is helpless. Speaking of things burning down, I thought this would be a great time to ask you a burning question. Ian, did you think that this was just a high-powered reboot of Disney's The Kid? (laughs) Woo, that's hot. Oh, my God. With Bruce Willis? And Spencer Breslin. Wow. Do you remember Disney's The Kid? I mean, I just remember that Bruce Willis is an adult and Spencer Breslin ends up at his doorstep or something. And he's like, oh, my God, it's the younger version of me. Mm -hmm. And then they just have to, like, live together for a while. Yeah, until Spencer Breslin goes away in some way that I can't remember exactly how it is. But... I wish there was somebody referencing Disney's The Kid in Paper Girls. I don't know. Did you did you think at all about Disney's The Kid? Because I've never thought about Disney's The Kid before this show, and I don't think I'll think about it after. Uh, for some reason, I pair that movie with the movie Jack, which is, of course, the Robin Williams <laughs> starring Francis Ford Coppola directing movie wow. yeah. about Robin Williams being uh hyper grown 10 year old boy who farts into coffee cans um, <laughs> and lights his farts on fire. Uh, that's really funny. Actually, I do get a very weird like childhood nostalgia feeling when I think of that movie, the kid, because yeah. I watched it in some specific place at some specific time that it, you know what I mean? Yeah, no. It's one of those like DVD covers, too, that I think about where you'd pass it. And also it was weird because it was called Disney's The Kid, so it was under D at Blockbuster. Weird. And it was that it was also like the only orange DVD cover that I could think of. 
And it had That's like true, because everyone knows the orange VHS, which is of course Good Burger. Of course. Yeah. Um, I think other Nickelodeon movies might have done that too, but I don't care about them. Yeah, for sure. Uh, John, I've got a burning question for you. Can Nate Cordry act? <laughs> That's hot. (laughs) I don't want to be mean, and I do like him as a performer. But there is something about comedians doing drama that when there's a serious situation happening or they're supposed to feel strong emotions, they just kind of wince their face in a way that they're hoping comes across as sadness. And... I just get that from him, and I do not think he's delivered either here or in Studio 60. And I, again, I like Nate Cordry as a performer. I just don't know if he belongs in these dramas. I thought he worked here. And I was, I get where you're coming from. There was an element to like the second half of his arc where, so Nate Cordry dies, um, the 2019 version of Nate Cordry dies. Uh, he gets blown up by one of these Pacific Rim robots. And then they're in 1999, so they need to meet up with the 1999 version of him in order to decode where these time folds are going to be. And the girls are pissed at him because he was like, oh, I'm going to take you back to 1988. And he doesn't. He takes them back to 1999, which is when he's supposed to be back in time. And so they are all really upset with him. And the younger version of Nate Cordry is so remorseful of this thing that he hasn't even done. And I bought that. I did. I bought that as he was delivering that part of his performance for sure. Yeah, I agree. He's really good at 90% of it. And then when it comes to some kind of extreme emotion, he has to feel, he just winces his face. And I just, (laughs) Maybe it's like because I, it could be because I'm self-conscious of doing that in my own acting. I feel very aware of when people are feeling things and when people are pretending to feel things. Uh, so I just get that from him a little bit. But enough ragging on Nate Corridry, Ian. Why don't we take a quick commercial break and then talk about why this show got canceled? And now, a word from our sponsors. So, this show was canceled a month and a half after it came out. Yeah. And it's pretty fresh, so there hasn't been a ton of information out there yet about it. The speculation is just that premiered too hot off the heels of Stranger Things. Everyone was too obsessed with that at the time. And that between the boys season three premiering and Lord of the Rings coming out, it just got buried in Amazon's promotions. um, And that they just didn't take care of the show the way they should have, which I completely agree with. I think they didn't fund the show the way they should have. And I vaguely... I think maybe I saw a trailer to this a couple months ago, and that's about it. And considering this is a popular comic book, and I assume that this was supposed to be 
their Stranger Things, right? The comparisons keep getting made, and For I understand sure. why. From a production design perspective, from like a kids in peril perspective, you know, there's the sci-fi stuff as well. There's the 80s stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And there's all those jokes that come with that. But it is interesting. Yeah, like like you said, this show had a fan base. Uh, it's based on this series of comics by Brian K. Vaughn, who also, you know, co-created Why the Last Man. As what? well as a Yeah. Yeah, oh he, my god, he wrote I totally the ori- missed that. He wrote the original, yeah. And uh, also this uh, really cool graphic novel saga that I've uh, read as well. So he has, Brian K. Vaughn has a fan base. And I think, honestly, that's one of the biggest things that got Jason Manzoukas involved, too. Was Yeah, also Ali Wong, actually. I, I listened to him talk about it, and he... Loved the comic, sent it to her. She loved the comic. And then they both lobbied really hard to get these parts. Mm-hmm. I think she had to lobby less so. But um, they both really wanted to be a part of this. So when you have something, obviously they have the boys, which they took their liberties with from the source material, at least as far as I've understood it, and made it into this big juggernaut franchise for Amazon. Oh, not and, to mention the graphics to that are phenomenal. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, absolutely. And it has a huge cast and it's big and it's sprawling and it's world building. And the investment in this show, yeah, just didn't seem to be there. The only context I had had for it was having it pop up like on my Amazon TV. Like I have a fire powered TV. And so, but I hadn't seen anything like that before. Did you see that um, Edgar Wright had a tweet criticizing Amazon because they emailed him, hey, watch Amazon Prime. Check out this show, Paper Girls. And he's like, oh, you want me to watch this show you just canceled? Which my understanding is he actually is a fan of Paper Girls. But he was like, what is this backwards process? Yeah. Why then why did you cancel it if you want people to watch it like a month? After Why didn't you email me two months ago saying I should watch this instead of, right. It doesn't make any sense. And the only exciting stuff that came out of this research for me was uh, that now I know that Nielsen releases the top 10 streaming shows mm-hmm. with the number of minutes uh, streamed every week now. And they have a couple different categories and I guess this has been around for a little while, but this is the first time I ever looked into why was a show canceled. And many publications reference the fact that it never popped up in the top 10 list. No, it was a show that I think could have had a decent amount of fanfare, but it didn't capitalize on anything that was built in and it didn't do much to say sort of what the the show was about either like i looked at the poster for this show and it was the four girls and it was one version of a time machine that was kind of cracked open and there wasn't even like a tagline on it or anything like that and this was on imdb which is owned by amazon so i forgot that yeah of course like that's what's on imdb like if people are searching this thing like why aren't you 
doing more to exactly you said a couple times you said it wasn't doing i would be more specific and say amazon wasn't doing for sure absolutely so yeah that's pretty much it unfortunately uh we have not i mean we're recording this show a little bit over a week after it was canceled so there's not a ton of information out there but it just seems to be another casualty of whatever analytics it is that some of these streaming services use that are specific to the company and they don't have to give us any reasons. So we have to speculate. Yeah. Um, It is being shopped around, but you know, I mean, why the last man was being shopped around too. And same with Modoc, you know, I mean, very few shows actually get a second life, unfortunately. Yeah. One thing that we didn't mention, though, was that the show was created by Stephanie Folsom, who had some pretty big writing credits. She has a story by credit on Toy Story 4, but she also wrote on Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. So she has this relationship established with Amazon. And yet, from my understanding, either she left the show in the middle of production or they fired her as a showrunner. And so it was later taken up by one of the other writers. I think it was was, uh, Christopher Rogers who went into that role. He was a co-creator of Halt and Catch Fire on AMC, which I've never watched. And I always meant to, but there you go. Yeah. (laughs) Right there with Rubicon. Never watched him. Always Rubicon. There is always Rubicon. It was... So there was this... So there was this behind-the-scenes drama a little bit, too. We don't really know what the cause of it was or if there even was drama or if she just left to work on something else. But in either case, it does seem like it was a deal that was made, I think, in 2019 when the comics got optioned and Amazon picked it up. I wouldn't be surprised if COVID delays sort of killed the momentum I saw it was greenlit July 2020. Oh, so okay. which maybe, is interesting to me because it was during, you know, the height of COVID. Yeah, maybe that was, maybe 2019 was when the original run of the comics ended. Yeah, July 2019. Yeah, so that that could have been it too. But delays, turnover, showrunners, momentum can die, especially when you have such a juggernaut like. Amazon that's just trying to push out the next great thing and they're willing to shove $750 million into Lord of the Rings to do so. You know, the showrunner turnover makes sense to me too because there is something about the first two episodes that feels different than the rest of the show to me. I could see that, yeah. Well, John, the real question is, could you see renewing this show? Get me a bike and get me out on that trail because I absolutely would renew this show. I don't think that the sci-fi elements were as impactful for some of the reasons that we talked about, whether that was production, whether that was just me not really caring that much about time travel. But I do, when it comes to time travel stuff, I don't know how you feel, but I like the sort of use of the determinalist everything is going to happen as it's going to happen 
thing of time travel because then it feels more like sort of a a puzzle than it does like an action adventure. And so it focuses more on the characters than it does on like changing something huge. And that's the kind of sci-fi that the show deals in. And what it does in that case too is it also puts a lot more focus on how the characters are dealing with the situation that they're in and specifically the relationships that each of the characters have with themselves, their future selves or their future family members, I found to be fully compelling. I was, that was where the show just really took off for me to see these girls reacting to what they become, to see the older versions sort of seeing, trying to relate to them. Like that was a big thing for adult Tiffany as she was trying to explain to younger Tiffany why she took the path that she did. It's like, I know what you are feeling right now. I know what's important to you. And I am telling you that that's not going to matter as much. And I know because I felt these things too. And so that was the kind of sympathy that I felt like really sort of oozed throughout the rest of the show. It never took characters. It always took characters seriously and I found them to be interesting. And yeah, they kind of dove a little bit into some sort of hammy kind of obvious emotions or like withholding information that didn't need to be withheld. Like Mac withholds her finding out that she's going to die in four years from the group for most of the series. Yeah, but that actually made sense to me. Yeah, it, but exactly. It made sense given Mac. I just don't tend to like that sort of, you know, holding the carrot away from it. Oh, yeah. We've talked about it on the show uh, a lot. You know, some things use that as a crutch in order to drive drama. But here it made sense. I, I'm not going to talk about the distinction for 20 minutes, but I had zero problem with that here. It completely made sense to me. Yeah. Um, I just generally don't like, yeah, I'm just saying I just generally don't like that as a thing. But I, again, I do agree with you. I think that it did work here and it, yeah, it just cared. And the, the kids were fantastic too. The, the acting, especially from the woman that played KJ, the woman that played Tiffany too, like they were just really, it was great kid acting. There was one or two where I'm like, I think maybe everything really came together for me at like the third episode. The first two episodes, I, you know, some of the acting was whatever. Some of the, uh, the way it was shot was a little amateurish. Like it just felt like we were just kind of shooting it in our backyards mm-hmm. a little bit. The Power Rangers thing, it just really didn't read at all for me <laughs> at the beginning. But the kid acting was really good. It was really good. I wasn't convinced at first, but it was really good. With that being said, Ian, renew? I would renew. In fact, I'm going to go as far as to say I'm devastated that it's canceled. I really am, too. I think there was a lot more that could have been done with the show, too. I ordered the graphic novel. Um So don't tell me how it ends. Okay, I would love to borrow that because I, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Like, I am excited to see where the story goes and how it how it concludes. Well, apparently the the that only takes place over the three or four days, whereas this it looks like 
you know, Lovecraft Country style, season two would have to go into a completely new direction. Yeah, this was maybe one of the biggest cliffhangers, I think, that we've gotten from a one and done TV show. I can't think of one that left on like a bigger, there was some ambiguity in some of like our bigger shows like Why the Last Man. Right, but but it's written by the same guy. (laughs) Yeah, and also it was like, hmm, things could go differently here, but... No, what we have at the end of this series of Paper Girls is like very big, like what is going to happen next. Yeah, that's true. Because like Queens ends on like a hooray. Um, The get down ends on a hooray. Uh, You know what? Pivoting had kind of a cliffhanger ending. But not as much. Not not as as much. much. But that is like... Wow, yeah. Actually, there have not been too many cliffhanger endings. So this one really stung when I saw it. Because, again, I don't think everything worked. But when this show soared, it it really, like, you know, I'll go as bold to say easily top three for me of the shows that we've watched so far in this show, I think. I really loved it. Man, I don't, mm, I'd have to put thought to that. But this I would is too. the only show where I really wanted to watch the next episode. And maybe it was the fact that it didn't feel complete too. Cause I guess some of those other shows that might be, you know, that I might've enjoyed more at least felt like a full story. Whereas Mm -hmm. this didn't. And that stunk. No, but the cliffhangers at the ends of every episode were good too. Like it, it did make me want to come back every time. And it nailed Uh, again, it nailed the slow moments too which was, I think, what really made it stick out for me. Okay, the only thing, the pa- going back to the Power Rangers of it all, <laughs> I want to bitch for just like one second. At the end of the first episode, the people are shot, and then the old watch like, knows somebody's missing, just kind of looks around and goes, eh, okay, and turns around and leaves. And then after the giant robot battle, the old watch kind of looks around a little bit and just shrugs and goes, eh, okay, and then just kind of leaves. And also during that battle, like, the girls are watching from this trailer, and it's like, you're telling me that they have all this futuristic equipment and that... They can't scan surroundings? Yeah. Right. No, and, right, some of the robots were specifically scanning for living organisms, and it's like, you don't scan the most obvious place? There were just a couple times where like action was going on and they stuck everyone in one place and was like, we're just going to kind of gloss over this so we can get to the next point. Um, Even inside of the big robot, it was like all of a sudden they're all inside of it and there's just this one small room they're crammed into and then they're just out of it, you know, like, yeah. They definitely, uh, they cut some corners on that stuff, but normally that would bother me, but this show had so much going for it that I, I don't care. Like, I like to talk about it and bitch about it and dissect it with you, mm-hmm. but truly the, the highs are so much higher than the lows. Like I was like floor, this is power Rangers ceiling. This is better than stranger things. I cried. I cried a couple times watching the show. I was really moved by it. And yeah, 
eight episodes all available on Amazon. I, I really can't recommend it enough. You know, are there any other lingering thoughts? I have one. Get past the first two episodes and you'll like it. That's my, I get if people first watch it and go, eh, but I'm telling you, it it's good. It pays off. It really does. There was just one line that the prioress said in the last episode that made me laugh where the girls are sort of trapped in a house and they're about to give themselves up to the old watch. And the prioress is outside waiting for them to come out and with the pterodactyl. And she goes, ladies, we could do this the easy way or the way where the dinosaur rips the house apart. <laughs> I do wish, I do wish there were more kind of like fun sort of throwaway lines like that too. But that's again, a mild quip. Ian, where can people find us? Tweet at us, one and done TV. Instagram us, one and done TV. Email us, one and done pod at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts. Give us some suggestions. This was a listener suggested episode. Uh, get a large pan scraper. Watch how to with John Wilson. Uh. <laughs> Pay Ian at Hamilton. Thank you. Check out our website, oneanddonetv.com, just because even though you're not really going to get anything new if you listen. But it is cool, and the logo's great. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure at some point we'll have merch or something. So That'd be fun. Yeah, a hat or a mug. I I mean, it's not going to be my face, but... Oh, no, we're going to... we're going to bleach you out. We're going to print you on all of it, and then we're just going to dump bleach on your image. That's fair. I thought you were just going to recast me, which I would also understand. Uh, we've been thinking about David Coulier. Ooh, he has some fun things to say. Not to Alanis Morissette. And with that, I think it's time we hop into this fold, get through with this Pacific Rim robot, and get on out of this time. Uh, burping time hole. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media. 